0: Saint Josemaria, used to like summarizing his great spiritual ideals and human ideals by having recourse to scripture through little short phrases or brief um, sentences that he found there and that summarized beautifully or encapsulated his greatest ideals. And since he was very familiar with the Latin and used to always read the... The breviary in Latin and so forth—they the, would always come up in Latin. So, so we get uh, famous phrases like uh, "omnia in bonum," you know, all things work out uh, for the good, from Saint Paul. Or we get "Fiat adimpleatur," you know, uh, may may the will of God be done. And some of them we find here, you know, on on the altar linen, like uh, "Adaugi nobis fidem, spem et caritatem." And I'm sure we could go through through many different uh, phrases. And the one we want to look at today is one that, of course, he picked up upon reading the scriptures, but also was popular during his time, made popular in particular by uh, Pius X. And it was uh, "Regnare Christum Volumus. Mm? "Regnare Christum Volumus. We want Christ to reign, in which we underline well, the kingship of Jesus, of Christ, that we want that kingship to exist, to be truly present in our life, his royal kingship. But it's important also that we have a good understanding of the history of this phrase or, or just the very notion of kingship in Scripture. Because uh, we know that the story of God's covenant his covenantal family increases from being a nation under Moses to being a kingdom under King David and we see this in the book of Judges which ends with a very haunting antiphon it says uh, in those days there was no king in Israel every man did what was right in his own eyes." It's very haunting there was no king it was like we're lost <laughs> everybody was just like everybody was just doing whatever they wanted it's a kind of a stark conclusion that is uh, connected to two realities the fact that israel was kingless and that there was a a galloping relativism among god's people and after the very distressing ending of the conquest and the period of the judges, well, the story turns into a very hopeful and what is called sometimes a golden age in the royal kingdom, the period of the royal kingdom, which consists of several kings. First Samuel, then uh, Saul, then of course King David and his son, Solomon, the famous four kings, which had their virtues and, of course, a lot of problems as well. First, we get Samuel born from his mother in a miraculous way. And we know that the Philistines had tried to capture the Ark of the Covenant, but were eventually overpowered. And Samuel captures the captures back the Ark of the Covenant and he leads his people in in worship. And the book of Samuel states how God is the one who will save the people from their perils. In fact, he is their king. All the other peoples, the Egyptians, the Jebusites, the Amorites, uh, they all had a king. But the message that keeps being underlined is that the real king is God, Yahweh. But nevertheless the people still wanted a king they saw what was going on around them. they said we want a king like other nations have a king because kings of course they have their whole royal cortege and their their the royal you know, palaces and it looked really Im- impressive but Samuel warns them against this because He said, if you elect a king or choose a king, the king will require tithing and, uh, and he will lord it over you. He'll show his authority. But we know that eventually God, well, he gives Israel what they wanted. And it's true that the monarchy, the period of the dynasty, does come from the people's misguided desires to have a king and god will eventually transform the earthly monarchy into ultimately an icon of his own kingship a kingship that will one day issue in the unending reign of the king of kings jesus christ of course ultimately jesus christ is the one who we want to see reign mm-hmm. and he will eventually, of course, be Israel's real, real king, Jesus Christ. But for that to happen, it had to happen uh, progressively. They can't take it in all at once. That's why we have these progressive uh, dynasties, that Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Mm-hmm. And so, Samuel was pretty good. He was like heading the people in worship. But they had asked for another king. So he finds he's the one who finds Saul, and he's the one who anoints Saul. And sort of Samuel tries to rein him in and tells him about his duties and that the real king is 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 God. You know, so don't overdo it. He is the real true king. And that they should keep the covenant with God. But in the end, we know that the, the kingship with Saul is pretty brief and quite uh, tragic. Not only does he not obey Samuel, but he often enters into battle before the allotted time. He's a very insecure guy. He gets jealous. He makes rash oaths. His son, he's, he's jealous of his, of, of his son Jonathan's success. And eventually we know Saul is superseded by David. And Samuel had already told Saul that, that David would take the place of the throne of Israel. That he would find a man according to his own heart. And so King David is installed at Hebron. eventually captures Jerusalem where he moves the Ark of the Covenant and there's some beautiful accounts where he worships in front of the Ark in front of all the people so that yes he's like a king and a priest so we know King David he was a great king but he also sinned and he was punished for his sins especially for the bad sons that he had some of them like Absalom even revolted against him but eventually of course King David well he dies and just on his deathbed he tells his son Solomon that his reign should not depend on military strategy but on fidelity to God and the Torah like be faithful to the Torah So Solomon is set for the Davidic throne and then we have a brief period where Israel is kind of like again in another golden age and Solomon is remembered for his wisdom and his nobility. The book of wisdom is attributed to him supposedly and he's the one who eventually made the temple of Jerusalem that was really his greatest uh, contribution. I mean, the Temple of Jerusalem was just insane. I mean, it was amazing. Right? It was meant to be, in all its symbolism, in all its architecture, like a mini-cosmos of the, of, of the cosmos, right? And, uh, and it, it was, was insane. It was just like insane. Yeah. And like David, he would preside over the assembly as a kind of a priest-king priest and king. He would bless the people with the divine name. He would lead the people in prayer, the prayer of consecration, consecrating the people to God. He would offer sacrifices before the Lord. But, well, if only he had continued like that, that would have been good, but he eventually turned away from the Lord and began to worship other gods. And, well, Egyptian gods, and it was bad news. (laughs) This would eventually lead the people to exile, and we know that beautiful temple that he had built was just destroyed, turned and burnt down into ruins. And uh, because of his disobedience, he was rendered just a pathetic shame in front of his pagan uh, neighbors because he forged alliances with some of the pagan kings in fact he even swore oaths to the foreign gods you know like there was some egyptian god or whatever and uh, he would forge an alliance he would marry one of their queens and they said okay now you have to you have to invoke our foreign divinity and he was "Ah, no problem no problem i'll do this yeah so it was like a cancer that entered into the kingship in, under Solomon, that started to spread. You know, cancer always starts small, but with time it spreads and it goes into the whole organism. And the whole, it seems as though the whole of Israel was falling down. Because he had no longer maintained Yahweh, God, as the true king. He let the cancer in. And it began to spread. And one example of that is that in the end, the kingdom was divided in the north and the south. All that land that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, well, it was now split in two. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and many of those other tribes ended up being taken over by foreign kings, foreign peoples. It was pretty bad. With all these bad kings that followed, it was bad. Of course, the worst of it all was eventually the exile. And uh, they had to go, they were all, you know, just taken away. Temple was destroyed. And it is quite fascinating to consider that the New Testament shows us, as we begin, a new king. A new king. Like, it was a disaster. I mean, not only Solomon, but all the other kings after. It was just like, there were some, okay, there were some, okay, a bit better, but, uh, but there's a new king. And who is that new king? Well, <laughs> it's not Jesus. <laughs> it's not Jesus. Because around the year 63 BC, the Roman general, Pompey, conquered Palestine. Again, the ro- a new foreign power. Now the Romans putting Israel once again under its, under its feet, like under foreign occupation. And a new king arises. And it's, it's Caesar Augustus. And he, Caesar Augustus, proposes a legislation. First, the Roman Senate is a bit reluctant, but they do it. And they declare that Julius Caesar is... A God he's a God he's not just the king he's a God he's Divus Julius like Jules or Julius the God in other words Augustus declares that if his father was God then Augustus is Divi Filius the son of God he's the son of God this all happened just literally a few years, of course, before the birth of our Lord, the true Son of God. And immediately, at this time, temples arise in the empire for the worship of Julius Caesar and also of Caesar Augustus, and uh, Caesar Augustus puts forth all this propaganda, campaign for the imperial cult, the birthday of Julius Caesar, and all this was celebrated as good news. It was the gospel. It was like that's where the word gospel comes from. It doesn't come from Jesus. It comes from Caesar Augustus. Because Caesar Augustus was the bringer of peace. He was the savior of the world. Who ended the terrible political volatility of Rome. And ushered in an unrivaled time of peace. And unification and prosperity. That's where we get the word gospel for from Pope Benedict speaks about that so the term gospel in the Roman world had Caesar as its subject and it told the story of Caesar's rule as the hope of humanity as the source of all good as the source of all true unity of course it was Rome that was made prosperous. And how did that peace come about? Well, it came about by just absolute violent imposition of Roman power over, you know, over a whole area that was just, just you know, violently imposed. And uh, the most violent way in which it was imposed, that they would crucify anybody who rebelled. Anybody who rebelled. It was like the most horrific form of torture, but it was a public form of torture, so you could see, like, if you rebel against this kingdom, this, this God, Caesar, that's what's going to happen to you. That's why, when we read St. Luke, like the other gospel writers, he intends the story of Jesus to be read in the light of the story of Israel. And the early Christians believed that in Jesus, the story of Israel was at last really reaching its long-term climax, its long-term resolution, with all those kings that didn't seem to, to, you know, to stand up to the, to the test. And we know how the angel Gabriel came in, his presence in the opening scene, in the infancy narratives. And he announces that a Messiah, what does a Messiah mean? It means an anointed king, Mashiach. Like Saul, he was anointed. King David was anointed. And so Gabriel says, a new Mashiach will come. And he'd also been sent to Zechariah, and then to Mary, and... He basically is suggesting that the exile is now over and the time for the Messiah the Mashiach is now at hand and everything he talks about Jesus is really that well he describes that the that the child that Mary will bear is both royal and messianic he will be great he says he will become the son of the Most High and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end That's the kingdom in its fullness so that means that Jesus really fulfills both the great covenant oath that was made to David that one of his line would live forever and be God's own son. That's what David was promised, somebody in his, son, in his line. That's why we say that Jesus is in the line of David. That's why we say he's the son of David. And also the covenant promised to, to Abraham's name will be made great with a royal dynasty. And that's of course confirmed when Elizabeth meets Mary, because now Mary, pregnant with Jesus, she is the new Ark of the Covenant. She bears God's presence that is now conceived in her womb. That's why John the Baptist, who's announcing Jesus, he he leapt inside her womb, just as David had leapt in front of the Ark of the Covenant. she says, why is it this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, that passage only makes sense in the context of the divinic kingdom of old. We, why? Because the mother of the king was the queen over Israel and Elizabeth greets Mary with respect due to the the same respect that is due to the Queen of Israel, like the First Lady. And she's praising the new Davidic king, and she's praising the Queen Mother. That's why we call her the Queen Mother. Our Lady is Queen. So all this is a very mysterious reign for us, uh, that this kingdom is going to happen in the future. We know he will reign, although we have no doubt. It's a beautiful promise, and we ask the Lord now that this really be realized in our hearts. That Lord, you really reign in my heart, in my mind, in my soul. Mm-hmm. That this, that really, you know, this King, in the messianic sense, you know, is really in accord with the promises of the prophets. Uh, that kingdom that will have no end has to somehow reign in our hearts, and our souls, and our minds, in the way we think. And that's a, it's a beautiful promise because it's something that is stable and sure in the future. It's not violent and uncertain or full of upheavals and competition. This king, if he really reigns in my heart, will give me peace. He will give me serenity. He will kind of, like, empower me. You know, That's why Donovro loved that phrase. In fact, when he was named bishop he had to choose a, a motto you know imagine if you're named bishop and you had to choose a motto what would you do hi peace and love or <laughs> <laughs> what would you choose you know if you had to choose a you go through the different uh, uh, mottos that people choose when they're named bishop well he chose regnare christum volumus volumus in plural we want christ to reign because because He understood that when Christ really reigns in my heart, when I give him uh, that prominence in my presence of God, when I offer my hardships and my setbacks to the Lord, I somehow uh, get united to him, I somehow become a man or woman of peace. I think that's why he was always so peaceful, serene, when we see Don Alvaro. He's always got this image of serenity. And maybe we can ask him, since he started the Maoro, Reynade Christum Boljubush, or we can ask him to give us the fruit of Jesus reigning in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, which is that serenity, that peace. And others see that. They see it when the Lord reigns in my heart, in my mind. I heard a story of a guy who I I think he was supernumerary, but he he was like a a business and consultant, right, and he had to Go and speak to the members of a board meeting of a big company There was the CEO the CFO the who-knows-who all these super powerful people in this international company and they were way up on the top floor of some mega building and they had the whole view of the city, you know and like all smoking (laughs) cigars kind of thing, you know, (laughs) and and um, and so he was he is, he was the consultant. So they did what he said right, that he suggested for the expansion of this business. But but they were not happy with him. Basically, they didn't like what he had said, and the things were going southward or whatever. And so each person in this company, each one of the board members, started like attacking him and said, "You told us to do this, and look what's up." And another guy said, "Yeah, you said this and that." that, that, that bang you know. and the other guy the CFO yeah I followed your advice and look what happened they were like way like aggressive against him and of course as he's hearing all this his nerves are like going up and up and up and he could he could re- he started getting really like his heart rate started going up and he said my god these people are going to kill me what the heck you know and he started getting really like is this going to be a panic attack or what and uh, but as he was getting more and more nervous suddenly to his mind came the image of don alvaro boom there he saw don alvaro peaceful cool chill smiling and of course don alvaro he had to make decisions too and they could have been i don't know mistakes or whatever he probably had to get you know kicked back uh, and immediately as he saw that image of Donna, was so peaceful and so gentle and calm, he suddenly, all, all the nervous energy in his mind... and they were all like staring him down saying, hey, what do you have to say to that? And he said, well actually, and he, his mind was like so clear about what he had said and why he had said it, actually, and he just gave like a you know the best response he could give and people said oh hmm okay that's yeah okay and then after the CEO of the company told him you know that was the best response I've ever heard from a consultant in my life (sighs) you know (laughs) And he just said, thanks, Don Alvaro, I mean, like, <laughs> thanks a lot, I needed that, right? Why? Because uh, he was, like, channeling the spirit of Don Alvaro, who in turn was channeling the spirit of, of the peace of Christ. Christum volumus. So if Christ really reigns in our hearts, we won't be another Solomon who occasionally has a golden age, but then, you know, worships the golden calf, so to speak. We want you to reign deeply in our hearts, Lord. And it must really show outwardly in how we interact with others. In heaven we will see the visible king. We will see it. Like our father said in the way of the cross, Lord, you are my king. You must reign. Like when you came into Jerusalem on the humble donkey. He said, remember that Christ's throne is the cross. His crown is made of thorns, the need for temperance, so that even our most basic feeling may be transformed into a Hosanna to Christ the King. Meaning, mortification. We must die through mortification and penance so that Christ may live in us through love. That's why we die to ourselves, so that Christ can reign. And uh, I'm trying to figure out why, why this phrase came. Well, I realized it came actually from the exact, it is the exact counterpoint of one of the parables, uh, which from Luke 19, which says, He will not reign over us, about a king and so forth. Well, that's the opposite of what we want ask for that so that he can really reign clearly in our apostolate Uh, he needs uh, docile instruments you all have apostolic jobs apostolic uh, responsibilities things to work on catechism, hospitals girls clubs meditations to fill so we ask this so that it really becomes true We'll get that peace that comes from letting the Lord reign. And naturally, Our Lady will be our Queen. She's also there to intercede for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for